BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Sure am. Guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And wait a second. Stop everything. Do you pronounce it Brewer? Brewer. Brewer. All right, let's keep yep, going. Yeah, Guys. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. Listen, I want to make sure, you know, I. you never know. Guys, Ryan Brewer's here. Brewer Blades. Um, and before we get into it with my man, Ryan. Let's talk about a little business, shall we? What do you say? First things first, Broadback Ironworks makers the 2x72 grinder. This grinder is for you if you are taking away material, if you're a knife maker, if you're a metal worker, if you're a woodworker, if you're a sculptor, and no matter if you're taking away if you're taking away material, this is the the grinder for you. And if you go to broadbackironworks.com, put in the promo code KNIFETALK10, you're going to get 10% off uh, their attachments. They have tons of great attachments, their parts, their kits, the whole nine yards. They also are the distributor to my next uh, a distributor to my next uh, read, Evenheat. They also have leather sewing machines, and they have the sharpening system, which is really top-notch. So go check out what's going on over at Broadback Ironworks. Tell them I say hello. Those guys are great. I've had them on. If you want to know more about Broadback, uh, last year I interviewed Ryan and Vince, and it was a really interesting conversation, and it wasn't like an infomercial. It was really like about these two guys and how they kind of met and it's definitely worth it so check out broadback ironworks go follow them on instagram blah 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 i'm with you next are my friends at even heat manufacture the the finest heat treat ovens available get yourself take a look at the even heat ovens at evenheat-kill.com check out the tap control check out check out the solid state drive um i love these guys uh, i love the family the customer service is excellent when you call them they'll tell you how to fix your problems any problems that you might encompass or fall into or have it's all can take you can take care of it it's it's very easy they're awesome company i've been using even heat for years i bought my first even heat and i just loved it and i became friends with them and then they got involved with knife talk they got involved with a full blast i've know these guys and i stand behind what they do and appreciate what they do so go check out even heat go to even heat kilncom i mean if you go to harden something I mean, what are we doing, guys? One of you got to heat harden it with something. We're using even heat. Next are my friends in Australia, Nordic Edge. That's at Nordic underscore Edge. It's NordicEdge.com.au. They are a company in Australia. Uh, they've they're they make their way over the United States. They got all sorts of stuff over here, including the 
big Mert file guide. But what they're known for in Australia is they teach classes. They have knife making supplies. They have bat blacksmithing supplies. Anything you need to get started or resupplied. They are the if you want to even kind of dip your toe into knife making or blacksmithing, they have the stuff for you. If you want a kit or if you want something to try out before you get into it seriously, go check out what's going on over at nordicedge.com.au. They have uh, tang, uh, they have brooches. Brooches are great if you've got that uh, hidden tang knife. You got to drill into that. You got to grind into that handle, and you got to make your, your tang fit. They have uh, beveled jigs. They have the big Mert file guide, which you can get at. Um, knifekit.com they're great and i appreciate them for supporting the podcast and anything you need from them go check them out those guys are really good they're they're also run by knife makers uh, and these aren't you know these aren't faceless nameless guys sausage man forge is very involved with um nordicedge.com and if it's good enough for saucy it's good enough for you okay next is let's head north let's head north to canada maritime knife supply maritime knife supply.com maritime knife supply.ca for all your your knife making needs belts abrasive steels kilns forges presses heat treating ovens anvils everything you need to get started resupplied they're in canada but they ship to the united states with ease and you should definitely check them out i i tell you what I, you know what the great thing about Lawrence Lake is, is he's very involved in the community to the point where he'll listen to this podcast, he'll listen to Knife Talk, and then he'll go out of his way to kind of make sure he understands what's going on. I know that he was at the New England School of Metalwork. I know that he is actually, we just had Don Wynn on Knife Talk, and he said he sent a message. I think I'm going to go to that class. He's very involved in the community, so it's not just this dude who's looking at numbers. He's very involved in the knife-making community to the point where he is... Uh, supporting the Great Lakes Custom Knife Show in Ontario. Uh, go check out the Great Lakes Custom Knife Show on Instagram or check out the Great Lakes Custom Knife Show.com. Uh, it is going to be August 19th in Ontario. Definitely check it out. Uh, I Listen, I, I, I can't say enough about uh, Lawrence Lake uh, other than he's just a very supportive guy. And if you're going to support a company with a, with a, with a guy with a, who cares, who's got a, who cares about this, Organ this um, community go check out maritime knife supply next are my friends at trojan horse forge that's sam and jeff sam evans jeff graz they are guys down in texas building the stable rail knife finishing vice their vice is built in texas and they're designed to take your handles to a whole new level not just the handles they have plates that bolt on so you can hand sand comfortably. They have rubber all over the place. It comes in a bomb-proof case. Uh, the stabilization uh, of system to support your knife is un unbelievable. And you can say, oh, but I don't do that. I do uh, integral bolsters. No problem. You can move the plate, and it takes care of it. it kind of drops the integral into to un, into the slot and you can you can uh hand sand with these you got a distal taper no problem we got pins that kind of support it they thought of everything curved knives hidden tank full tank no matter you'll get yourself squared away and then you turn it around you stick it in once the handles are on and then you can cut you can carve with ease carve and sand with ease so definitely check out what's going on over at um uh, at the uh sorry about that i lost i lost my paper i lost my papers if you, uh the uh, the stable rail knife finishing vice at trojanhorseforge.com the problem is is you i got jeff and sam and jeff they're all squared away so next thing is my friends at baker forge and tool baker forge and tool are the makers of uh beautiful steels beautiful um they make this uh, this composite steels with copper liners, with different types of sand mines, and they have tiger mine, bronze mine, copper mine, and they make these 
beautiful knives sandwiched with all sorts of pattern welded steel. Uh, they use ADCRV2. It's definitely, if you're a stock removal guy and you're thinking to yourself, I'd like some razzle dazzle in my life, the Baker Forge stuff is worth it. So go check out bakerforge.com and uh, definitely put in the, the uh, put in the promo code uh, full blast and it'll give you 10% off all your steels and all your uh, gator piss that's the etchant that they use i didn't make the name up i'm just reading it um it's actually however all jokes aside it is dynamite stuff it's pre-measured pre-mixed etchant and it's awesome and if you go to uh, bakerforge.com you can put in the promo code full blast and you will get uh 10% off all of that and if you're in europe and you're like let's try this stuff out go to diyeurope.eu and uh, get yourself some of that gator piss you know what i'm saying all right guys Next is my friends at Total Boat. They're up there now. All the Total Boat guys are doing some to the boat building marathon. All these guys, Derek from Malden, Keith Decent. Uh, and I don't think Keith Decent's up there, but Keith Johnson's up there. Keith Mitchell, Jimmy Dresser. Uh, they're, all making, they're all making boats. You know why? Because Total Boat's the best stuff around. If you use all their paints, uh, adhesive paints, primers, polishing compounds, you will be fired up and you can use it. I definitely use... They're two-part epoxy for uh, all my handle scales. Definitely worth it. Uh, and if you go to totalboat.com slash full blast, you'll be using a um, you'll be using an affiliate code that helps me and helps the podcast. And I appreciate it. So check out what's going on. Get their UV cure clear resin. I love people ask me, like, oh, you know, Total Boat, do they do stuff for knife makers? They do stuff for boats, just like all the other ones. You know, all the other ones are making stuff for boats and I've been using it and I'm amazed at how well it works and the pumps are very easy to use. It's very user friendly. You use one pump of each of the two part epoxy. It's not enough for 10. You can do it for one. It's just, it's very intuitive and I think the knife making community would benefit totally by using Total Boat. So totalboat.com slash full blast and it gets you some discount and it helps me out. All right. Next are my friends at GL Hanson and Sons at g.l.l. <laughs> underscore Hanson and Sons. That's gcarta.bigcartel.com. The gcarta is a unique composite of natural fibers and fabrics mixed with um, mixed with epoxy. And what it is is it's almost like this cross-cut micarta with lots of different colors and stuff like that. It's really, really, really special stuff. And if you, especially if you're looking for a little color in your handles and you're just like, well, I'm not that creative and I want to do a little pop this is the stuff for you it's really beautiful stuff it it, it, it holds off well uh, you can get yourself some uh, some of the colors they have Bofa Ripple Cut Tuxini uh, by Mickey uh, by Mikey I mean um, Mahi Mahi Radio Worm G Carta Pheasant by Mikey uh, Colorama by Mikey, Hoopla by Mikey, and they allowed me to name one of their variants of the Hoopla by Mikey, which is called Electric Fuzz. If you want some razzle dazzle, definitely get some, get yourself some of that. Uh, I'm amazed at how beautiful this stuff is. Uh, if you go to gcarta.bigcartel.com, you get yourself some of that. And if you follow them on Instagram, it's g.l.underscorehansonsons, and you can see what they got. By the way, I didn't mention that the in the um, Trojan Horse Forge. It's if you put full blast in, you're going to get free shipping. All of the deals and the and the promo codes and all that stuff is in the show notes of these shows. So if you're just like, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? Go check out what I said by reading that and uh, check out what's going on over there. Um, and last but not least, I want to thank uh, Tormek. Tormek celebrating 50 years of being in business. They have the T8 sharpening system. It's a water-cooled sharpening system. I got one, and it's great. Actually, uh, if you're a professional knife maker and you're looking to 
have the speed of sharpening and the elegance of the edge without suffering any mistakes or mishaps or too much this or not enough that and you really want to find it's, it's it's like the fine it's like the fine tuning especially if you're having to sharpen 15 knives or 20 knives or something like that and you 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 want to you want excellent job you want a little bit of haste can't be you know can't spend one day sharpening you want to be able to get all best of all worlds the tormek is for you uh, definitely check out tormek.com or follow tormek underscore sharpening uh on on uh, instagram i really really appreciate what they're doing it took me a long time to figure it out and it was all operator error all the things i used to say operator error i'm not perfect i never expected to explain myself as being perfect but definitely check out what's going on at tormek i appreciate you and really really last but not least i just want to hit one thing before we we talk ryan um my friend our friend bob rankin custom knives that's bob rankin under uh cust.com bob my mistake Bob Rankin Custom Knives.com is going to be on next week, and I'm very, very honored that he would come here. He is an awesome person, uh, awesome person out of Michigan. He is a friend of mine. I've been buying his Damascus for years for my knives, and he had a very terrible, terrible tragedy that he's going to come on next week and talk about. His son passed away, and it was very unexpected, obviously, and um, he is doing a raffle. He is doing a raffle. Uh, with Chad Kimmel and Rocco and all these guys, uh, they're doing this raffle. Two knives, a K-tip and a Santoku, and um, the steel from the Twin Towers, one of the Tower 2, is in the um, one of the knives, and then a cable, uh, cable hook off the USS uh, Eisenhower uh, is in another knife, and then there's white oak planted by the George Washington family, I guess all certified and documented. I make jokes, but I mean, it's real deal stuff. The video of the build will be on Dennis Tyrell's YouTube page. And if you go to BobRankinCustomKnives.com, get a sticker and you will be entered in the raffle. And the money is going to Bob. Bob's going through it. Bob's going through it. So the raffle runs through uh, August 31st, and it's definitely worth it. Bob is a friend of mine. And it's, what he's going through is unimaginable. And next week we're gonna we're gonna get into it. We're gonna get into it. And um, I appreciate you, Bob. And uh, I got myself a couple of them stickers because I want to make sure we're all squared away. In the meantime, in the meantime, with that said, thank you very much to my sponsors. Thank you very much to Craig Lockwood behind the glass for making sure this thing sounds okay. And thank you, thank you, thank you to my next guest, Ryan Brewer. Brewer Blades is here. One of the young guns. I have these in my mind. I have these different categories of knife makers from the West, knife makers from the East, Northeast, and older guys, younger guys. Ryan is one of the young guns coming out of the Northeast who is someone to watch. And I met him a few years ago, and I, I see him over at Dragon's Breath Forge all the time in the New England School of Metalwork. I'm honored to have you here, Ryan. How are you? Oh, I'm doing very well. It's a beautiful morning out here, and... Got a good mug of coffee and ready to look, ready to have a conversation. Look at you! Look at you! He's he woke up early for me. I appreciate something that, like right. that. So you know, on this young gun subject, when uh, when Will and I got our stamps, it, we uh, it, it actually it's not a journeyman Smith stamp; it's a junior Smith stamp. I've said that, but I think I accidentally said I, Will Stelter is unbelievable. I mean, it, I love you guys, you and Will and, and Jordan. I, Jordan Lamote, as far as I'm concerned, is part of the young guns, and you know Will. Um, 
Will, what's his name? The other Will. You know what Freeman. I'm talking about? Will Freeman, my boy, my boy Will Freeman. Will Freeman, my boy. He's a, he's a, he's a funny guy, and he's very subversive. Just to let you know, I ain't gonna <laughs> go into it. I ain't gonna go into it. But we know, you know, you know, I know. We all know he's subversive. But you, you guys are part of that young gun crew. I think that there was. A, I remember the first time I went to Blade Show in Atlanta, and I saw, I met. Will Stelter says I blew him off when I first met him, I, I, which is ridiculous. But at the same time, there was a picture of you, and I believe you were in it, and Will, and Will Freeman, and um, all these young guys. And you're just like looking at them, and they're all smiling. And you guys are all, one of the things that I think I would put you in this category is you're all also traditionalists. One of How the so? things, well, when I look at your knives, when I look at your knives, Jordan, uh, I look at Will, you guys are like believers, believers in the ABS, believers in the kind of the traditional craft of it all. And there's like, um, it's, it's a very good thing. In my yeah. mind, it's good to have people who are traditionalists. It's interesting to hear you say that because all of those fellas that you've just mentioned, I would... I would certainly describe them as, you know, believers in the craft. You know, no no argument there and, and a great compliment. But I would say all of us are sort of maybe trying to push the boundaries of where modern bladesmithing is now, oftentimes by like looking backwards, looking further backwards than just the last twenty, thirty years of knife making in America and trying to sink sink our teeth into what's been done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. That's interesting that you say that because I guess, you know, especially before I talk to anybody, especially a knife maker, I kind of look at their work and I think about it as a whole. And I see, especially with you, your work is very ABS friendly. And that's a, that's, I'm not, that's not meant to be a dig whatsoever. I, I, and I feel as though I, my personal opinion is I think the ABS is the best metalworking organization for forging crafts. I don't think that there's one that it does a better job at creating an environment where young guys like you want to do what they're doing and oppress upon it uh, some type of evolution. Sure. Yeah, no, you know. no arguments there. Other, other organizations, uh, I mean, they're just not, they're not, I, I feel as though that they're not 100% capturing the excellence that the ABS captures with the youth. And I think that you represent, you, you and all those guys represent it. I mean, you look at, I mean, the year you, the year you uh, got your journeyman Smith uh, designation. What a a year. (laughs) I think that that's like a, I think that that's like a, that is a, one of the, in terms of the ABS, I think that that's a very, very, very special year that will be, that will go down in history in the ABS, if there is a history of the ABS, of, all right, well, Forge and Fire worked. <laughs> well, like like many records that were set in the years 2021 and 2022, it'll have an asterisk next to it, but, but I well, agree with you. I, you know what, the, the, what's interesting about that is, if you want to talk a little bit of pandemic, all right, so if anyone's listening and they don't know what the hell's going on, um, the American Bladesmith Society does this great, you know, this great program, and what they have is, um, you have the ability to be a member, and then after a certain amount of years, you can test to get a journeyman smith. And it's the, the the test is not only just paying. I can't seem to get the first part right. You're supposed to pay 
every year. <laughs> it's a very tricky test of setting the, up a recurring payment. I am. I am. I will never. I, I have paid the dues to be a, a, a apprentice Smith for. I mean, forever. And it's like I can't get that right. So it's just like if obviously I don't. I don't want it bad enough. And then you have to make these knives, and the knife has to perform under the certain criteria. And then you have a set of three knives, five knives that are being scrutinized by master bladesmiths. And then you kind of. It is a very extraordinarily good watermark in regards to the craft of bladesmithing and there's some people who don't need it some people don't want it and i know a lot of custom culinary guys are just like eh, not for me and but guys like you and and um you know all you young guys you're you're dealing with you're 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 enjoying it you're appreciating it and you're finding the validation in it i would imagine yeah i'd say that's accurate um for me it was this sense of I I know that I do good work when I'm striving for a goal. And to me, like you said, the ABS is sort of unique in the sense that it is an organization that will rank you and it will test you. And there are um, just to, you know, some degree or another objective, some might argue with objective versus subjective, but there are clear criteria for a, a skill level, um, a level of fit and finish. And by setting that goal for me, I could say, okay, here's a benchmark, right? What, this is something I can work towards and that I can, not to, not to say like, oh, feather in my cap, I, I got it done, but more, you know, here is a, a measurable benchmark in, in the work. A measurable benchmark that's, it's not just a measurable bench, benchmark that you see at the end of the day. It's a measurable benchmark that is agreed upon by, you know, years and years of excellence. And Absolutely. by a group of a group of a group of extraordinarily talented people. Well, and I hold this I hold this view that um, making knives, making swords, really making whatever you want to make, but we'll stick to knives for now at least. Uh, it's never been easier. Our tools are phenomenal. I mean, you did eleven minutes of ad reads of people who are engineering these phenomenal grinders and jigs and vices, and it's so easy to just get one shipped all you know, from anywhere around the world right to your doorstep. So there's no excuse not to be making the best knives that have ever been made. We've got the best tools. We've got 220-volt, three-phase power, right? I'm, I'm not asking two apprentices to wake up at the crack of dawn and spin a stone grinding wheel. I just flip on the 2x72. Right. So there's no excuse. You know, go out there and make really, really good work. Do you think that, the, I mean, your year was a historic year because... You know, you guys all tested. It was the uh, largest amount of of people submitting to test for Journeyman Smith ever, right? It was like 50 or 60. How many people submitted that year? Oh, I'm going to, I don't know off the top of my head. I think it's in the neighborhood of 55 were like signed up for it. And then I think of that 55, maybe 40 showed in Atlanta. But yeah, it was, it was big. That's a bit, that's like, that's like big. And I wonder, based on what you said, if that the pandemic had anything to do with it in the sense of knife making now is far more popular as an as a hobby than ever before and i've said this i've said this a million times like it was never a hobby before blacksmithing and bladesmithing because it was never a hobby up until the last hundred years right oh I mean, yeah absolutely less probably less than a hundred years well i, I think mean, there I'm, was i think there was a case like we can cherry pick a fun little historical case i i'm gonna hazard a guess i think it was a french king who like 
you know, went down into the village and, and saw a blacksmith and said, oh, that looks like a lot of fun. And then there's this little smithy set up in, in his palace. But yeah, that's the exception that proves the rule. No one, no one was doing this profession, you know, just for funsies in their spare time. I'm glad you brought that up because Matt Harris, said, after listening to the podcast, me saying, nobody's ever done that. He sent me that, that article and it really was about this king who wanted to forge. And the problem was, was he had to hide how black his hands would be. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> he, a, he would, he set up, he was, I don't remember the king, but he had to, he, he met a, met a, made a, a studio or a smithy in his palace and then it had to hide it because either his wife or he was walking upstairs and rubbing his hands on all the He was blowing his doilies. nose into a, a silk handkerchief and it was coming out black. Right. Yeah, that's right. You know, everyone's waiting for it to be red from like, you know, some sort of you know illness. But other than that, but it's all, he's got these black handprints all over the, over the, but that is that, yeah, that is a, that is a, once again, cherry pick. But I mean, as, as, as a uh, popular hobby, as a popular hobby, in the United States, you just didn't see it as a regular thing that, you know, lawyers and, you know, regular people or whatever, right, lawyers aren't regular right. people, but like, you know, anyone who wanted something to do would be able to do it. And for there to be this ability to have this isolated hobby in your garage, in your basement, wherever, I wonder because, you know, during the pandemic, we're all by ourselves. There's, you know, obviously, you know, you're with somebody once in a while or something like that. I mean, I, my shot, I, I had to stop having interns during the pandemic. I had to, you know, I was all by myself. Maybe that was a linchpin for a lot of people to kind of say, all right, maybe this is the year where I can, you know, I have, you know, the, I have the forge, I have the backyard, I have all the space. No one's bothering me. I'm not doing anything. I might as well do something con constructive. Could be for sure. I think the the volume of JS applicants probably it was more just oh I wasn't able to test in twenty one so everyone who would have tested in twenty one and in twenty two all got lumped into twenty two because get, making a run at the test is like a, a two to three year thing. Um, I, I certainly don't think someone you know in in twenty twenty the pandemic hit and they said oh I've got all this extra time I'm gonna become a journeyman smith with the American Bladesmith Society. You sort of have to already be on that path at that point. Uh, Very good point. I didn't even didn't even dawn on me. So tell me, let's go into. I want to go into your journey. Yeah. How did you start in knife making or blacksmithing or any of it, forging oh, knives and swords? Well, there's a there's a. It's it's like a, a big river, right? It doesn't start as just a big river in one place. It starts in all these little streams that all keep coming together over time, right? So we'll 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 go up to the headwaters here. So. There is a big uh, uh, country fair that takes place in my hometown, Topsfield, Massachusetts, the Topsfield Fair. Very old country fair. And um, Prospect Hill Forge out of, I believe, Lexington has a little um, booth or, or outbuilding it, it, in the fair, in the craftsperson section. And, you know, uh, uh, Carl West or one of the other blacksmiths will be there and uh, forging nails or forging S-hooks or whatever. And... My folks tell me that, you know, as young as, you know, seven or eight, I would just park myself there and say, nope, you go on. You guys go on the roller coasters and the Ferris wheel. I'm going to stay right here and I'm going to watch him forge nails <laughs> for hours and hours. So that was, obviously, I was entranced by something about just the, the alchemy of it. So there's one piece of the puzzle. Um, I was always a, a nerdy kid you know I, I was a my dad read me lord of the rings you know at a real young age and i was reading fantasy books and there's there's no 
you know, better way as a child to get exposed to the symbol of the sword and, and this sort of magical, um, you know, almost spiritual thing that the sword as an object is. Uh, and, and, you know, many of the books I was reading, you know, talking about the sword as a magical object, it's talking about the forging of the sword, the, the creation or the reforging in the case of, of Lord of the Rings. So I had that piece of the puzzle. Uh, and then I was in the, I was in the scouts and in the scouts, um, you're always outdoors and you're using edge tools, knives, hatchets, saws for their intended purpose to, to make something out of nothing, to make a fire, to cook some dinner, to set up a shelter. And so, you know, exposure to the functional side of what is an edge tool and what makes it work. And, um, there, there's another piece of the puzzle. So those all sort of started coming together as I moved through childhood and, um, you know, I was always swinging sticks around in the backyard, pretending they were swords. And then I was carving sticks with a whittling knife to look more like swords. And then at some point, um, my folks who were, I'm sure, stoked that I was outside making things as opposed to inside playing video games, um, you know, threw as much support behind that as they could. And I got myself uh, an anvil and a forge and uh, started teaching myself from, uh, from YouTube right there in the garage. Wow. Who was your first YouTube video? It would be, it'd be two channels. It'd be Man at Arms, which was originally, um, oh, rats, I forgot the gentleman, Tony Swatton, down, Tony uh, Swatton. Out, in, out in California. And then later, of course, it was our, our friends at um, Baltimore Knife and Sword. So that would be the first piece. And then begrudgingly, I will admit that the second piece would have been Forged in Fire. So I, I was watching those early seasons. The, yeah, the, there's the. Tony Swatton, by the way, is outstanding. Oh, he's the man. T- Tony Swatton, um, he's supposed to come on here, but he's a busy guy. Uh, we're friends on Facebook, very friendly. We know people in general in common and stuff like that. And actually, Matt Stagmer sent him a message saying, you got to go on the podcast. When he's got time, he's a busy guy. <clears throat> Matt, I mean, he made the Infinity Gauntlet for the Avengers movie. Yeah. The prop. The, I mean, he's made any, you know, the, any movie where they need swords or armor all the pirates of the caribbean cutlasses all of them he made oh, it i think i i gotta i he i he's got an invitation i gotta re-send the invitation out we're trying to work at the time i mean literally he's a busy guy he told me once that he had to make a armor he had to make armor in 24 hours out of uh out of bud light cans for oh it was a gosh. bud light it was a bud light for that commercial. Bud Knight commercial is that him? Yes. Oh my yes. gosh. So it, I, th- I, I want to say it was from the Super Bowl, but I don't think it was. Yeah, but I think Bud Light needed was. a armor, armor made out of aluminum cans, and he had like less than twenty four hours to do That's it. That's absurd. He knocked it out. Oh, he's done it all. The Wonder Woman gear, and yep. the, I mean, if it's if it's anything, I remember seeing when he did it, Man at Arms at first, and it was exciting because he is he do, he did what they did that was smart. All those Man at Arms shows was they took popular culture things. Yeah. And that I would say, and really, I mean, I don't know if Tony Swatton knows about like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or whatever. You know, I mean, he's uh, he's also not the youngest of them. Yeah, but, but he's he also in game. the Hollywood industry. Like he's, he's, he's got finger on the pulse of what's being made. Well, he made, he made, he made it so exciting. Yeah. And he looked like your standard guy. I mean, he didn't look like he didn't look like the rock. He I mean, I'm being I'm being right now. I'm just being polite. Be but nice I mean, to Tony. 
Yeah, I love Tony. No, so Tony Swatton is the man. I mean, he's been the man forever. Now, to and, me, he looks like the like he's the 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 prototype of the blacksmith in the in the dark shop. You know, he definitely fits that profile. And Man at Arms as a show, it it followed a, a really successful model, which of course is how it's made. Right, how it's made as a TV show. It was also extremely formative to me in in sort of other parts of my life. But to take that model of hey, this is a really cool thing, and you, a layperson, would have no idea how this thing comes into being. Yeah. And then to combine that with, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Go keep ahead. talking about the sword as like this, this cultural object, this, this spiritual object. To combine those two things was, was just magic. Do you remember the first time you heard of Fortune Fire? Um, not specifically. I, I probably was, you know, 12 or 13 and heard of it. I, I do distinctly remember watching one or two episodes with my dad and saying, like, this is a little ridiculous. Like, they're not giving them enough time to make anything. And I, I kind of shunned the show for a little while after that because I, I felt, you know, like, I, I've got the number of this show. They're, they're, they're not making anything. They don't have enough time. But then, of course, you know, it drew me back in and, and I, I watched a good chunk of, of the first couple seasons. The crazy thing was when Forge and Fire first came on, I was one of the blacksmiths and fabricators at the Center for Metal Arts. When it was... Center for Metal Arts and Fine Architectural Metalsmiths, where we were running jobs through. Mm. And I had, spent an, uh, I had spent a few years forging professionally with teachers, with my teachers, to the point where we were doing, we weren't doing knives, we didn't do any of that stuff, we were doing forging pickets. We were doing pickets for railings, we were building and fabricating railings for like, Felicia Rashad from the Cosby Show and these big, huge, you know, uh, fences that would wrap around properties. And it was like a really kind of a, sure. it was much more, I don't want to say practical, but it seemed as though it was like the ornamental ironwork that was. And I just remember when it came out, I just was like, ah, oh, this is just another show. And I, But at the same time, I was very much along the lines of, I, this is good. Like, I used to love uh, Jesse James. Because he would show welding. And then Orange County Choppers used to show welding. And that was just like anything to show people welding in a cool light. I'm with that. Um, that was also at a time when my dad looked down on me and referred to me as my son, the welder. With a lot of like, with a lot of venom. It was like, it wasn't, it was, it was like, just like you're low class. He just felt that I was low class. Yeah. And I remember when it came out, I was just like, okay, cool. And then I started getting bombarded. Like, first season. Have you seen this show? You should be on this show. Have you seen this show? Have you been on the show? And I'm like, I don't give a... At the, t- at the <laughs> time, when we were at the Center for Metal Arts, we were looking down on the concept of making knives. We, at the, 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 the years I was at, at the Fine Architectural Metal Smith Center for Metal Arts, the word Damascus or pattern welded steel never came up. We tried doing, we had a class with, uh, uh, with uh, Spark and Bark. It's um, Hapney and um, uh, Peter Hapney and, and another guy. And we tried forge welding one time. And I, we'd never done it before. And it was during a class, but our gas forges couldn't get it high enough. And, and Wait, you're trying to like, tell me that you ornamental ironworking guys haven't been doing little scarf welds for all time? No, you couldn't, you couldn't we, figure out a flat stack. We we were doing. I mean, you want to be honest. We were using. You know, we were doing. We were forging elements, but we were welding them. Oh, in. you were just yeah. You were just we were welding them in, yeah. and like I mean, at the same time, the funny part is about a lot of ornamental iron workers, and 
you Matt Harris might have something. He got to come back on here. Matt Harris and I got to do some talking. There might be there. The interesting thing about this, and this probably kind of falls upon you know bladesmithing and 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 the practicality of it all, is. And I have talked to Pat Quinn about this a little bit. I mean, a lot of these guys don't want to pay for that scarf welding you know the yeah. they won't pay for the pay for the special you know like you know when you can make it up hit it with the hit it with the grinder and then hit it with the torch to get some scale going and then hit it with the wire wheel while it's hot you sometimes your customers are just like wait a second i'm paying for something i can't see what i mean <laughs> that's not really wait a second i'm paying an extra of a, a finder's fee for something that you're telling me happened that i i can't possibly see or <laughs> no one would ever know yeah so there is this practicality of it all and i just remember the funny part was is when back to you know people saying you got to go in forge and fire you got to forge and fire i used to say i'm not interested in i'm not knife makers are dorks we actually we actually interviewed this kid who his experience was he worked at the renaissance fair and we're like bro we're not we're not into we're not into larping we don't we need someone who can run an iron worker we need someone who can you know pop holes who can measure correctly get yourself in the center and it was like we were it was you know it took after me getting out and 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 learning about it but i definitely remember it was the forge and fire wave of like it was explosive you know especially when it first came out oh yeah yeah, and it took me it took me a while after watching, you know, Man at Arms and Tony and watching the Baltimore Knife and Sword guys and watching Fortune Fire. It took me a sort of shockingly long time after that to realize, oh, there's a whole community that's growing around this thing and you can go get involved with it. Like I well, felt like I was playing a lot of catch up when I finally, you know, made an Instagram account and started following people and realizing, wait, holy cow, they're all over the place. If you think about it, those guys really were the black sheep of the. Yeah, they were the leading edge. They were the. I mean, I I remember the first season because I watched when they came on YouTube. I remember um, seeing uh, Jonathan Porter. I remember he was in the like one of the first episodes in Morocco and and uh, Matt Parkinson on the first season, first episode. These were like black sheep in general of the metalworking community but at the same time that was kind of like the beginning stages of Instagram where you didn't see these people right. as popular culture icons or popular culture in the in the community of metalworking and now the crazy part is is like I can call Matt Parkinson up now you know I can call him up now say I've been become friends with Pat Matt Parkinson I've been friends with uh Jonathan Porter I've talked to him often and it's kind of wild that like I was looking down I was like I don't know how these guys are gonna do this goddamn show and and they're putting themselves pardon me uh, they're putting themselves in this position of they're putting themselves in this position of you know whatever and you know it just it's fascinating how these younger the guys who started in it were really they were really black sheep they were well and then I mean there's all, all number of you know the the, you know, the older generation of knife makers who had been sort of quietly doing it the whole time and right. really not making that much of a fuss about it, doing their own thing. And, and that world existed. And diving into the history of that is certainly worthwhile doing. And I might not be the right guy to do it. But I, at the end of the day, I sure am glad that, you know, the popular culture exploded around knife making and bladesmithing and forging in general, just because, you know, it's such a... I, I enjoy the community of it almost as much as I enjoy it itself, you know being able to talk to all these different people who have these different perspectives and backgrounds, but who all have this shared interest is just such a, such a joy. So what was the first knife you made? The first knife I made. Um, 
let's see, I, I made an, uh, an Aaron Goff jig and filed the bevels on, you know, a miniature version of one of his, his knives. That yeah. would have been the first real knife that I got out of a bar out of 1084 and, and actually tried to harden it in some oil. I was, you know, filing on uh, uh, pieces of scrap metal before that, but those were just sort of knife-shaped things. How good were those videos that Aaron used to do? Oh, they're phenomenal. They're still, they still hold up. It's, I think that it's ridiculous. I mean, between, him, <laughs> between Aaron Goff and Michael Trolsky, yeah, yep. I don't think you need, yep. and, and, uh, and uh, the main man, Will, uh, Walter Sorrells. I don't think you yeah, need anybody else. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's such a wealth of knowledge that it's, it's, it's so easy to tell someone how to start. If they're willing to put in the hours to actually do a little bit of research, it's all right there. Yeah. So at, at some point, you kind of you get the anvil. Your parents are for it. They like the fact that you're into it. You, vote, you know, it seems as though based on what you were saying in terms of the, the, different thing, the different avenues leading you to this, I mean, it was like the perfect storm. It, no one was, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't like you've done all these things for all of a sudden you turn your family like, I'm going to start to do knives. Everybody's like, of course you're going to make <laughs> yeah, knives. That's, that's what else? I mean, what, we wouldn't expect anything else. Yeah, pr- pretty much. Were you, did you take any classes or? No, that's the thing. I did not take a formal bladesmithing class until studying with Peter Johnson in like 2019, many, many years later. And we'll get to there eventually, I hope. But, yeah. but no, I really, the, the class was, you know, watching Matt Stagmer grind swords and watching Walter Sorrells, you know, harden something. And it, they're, they're telling you right there how to do it. This is how to do it. This is what to look for. This is how you know you've done it wrong. Um, and, and it's as valuable as like MIT open coursework on, on MIT's website. It's, it, it really is all right there. But, I, but however, I must say, and I'm going to question you on this, it, it's all right there. It's all right there. Until you get into, when you look at your work, the double lug integral hunting knives, this is for, you know, I've said this in the past, that like forging knives, the forging aspect of it, if you're a blacksmith and you can make a power hammer or you can make a leaf, if mm. you can make a leaf, you can make a, you can forge a knife. I mean, it's literally like I've actually had moments with friends of mine who are blacksmiths and we were forging integral knives and we're like, what's the big deal? Like we've had the experience, it's almost like wax on, wax off, you know, karate kid where you paint the fence a million times and all of a sudden you're just like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do, no problem. Like there's a lot of, obviously, but, there are subtleties in forging, especially complicated things like a double-lugged integral keyhole bolster, <laughs> you know, hunting knife. Well, we're skipping ahead a little bit to that one. I'm skipping ahead. I want to. I want your answer. Yeah. How sure. do you get from watching Walter Sorrell's videos to forging out a keyhole integral bolster double-lugged hunting knife? Okay, so I I do eventually, I do eventually study formally under under some Smith. So there's sort of two eras. There's the I'm in my parents garage era right. and then i well at that point i'm doing a little bit of soul searching like do i want to do this as a profession or do i kind of stay on the railway that i've been on you know coming up through schooling um i ended up going to engineering school uh in in central mass here and obviously when i got out to school i still wanted to be working on knives um and they uh i got kicked out of one of the maker spaces on campus for grinding a knife they didn't want me to do that kicked bad. out kicked out or, or what they... I, I was politely told that we can't make knives here and that's, that's fine that's, that's a fair. fine policy but uh but i needed some way to keep pursuing this thing that was you know consuming my my attention and my and my thoughts and i found a 
you know, a non-affiliated makerspace in the city of Worcester. And in that makerspace, you know, I had everything I needed. They had a power hammer, they had a hydraulic press, but more importantly, they had other bladesmiths. And now for the first time um, in, in, this would be 2016, I was actually surrounded by people who were doing the same thing, some of them at, at a much higher level. And so there was some level of osmosis there, and I'm, I'm learning very, very quickly. I'm, I'm no longer uh, held back by kind of lack of equipment. Um, and then from that point, I get involved in the greater bladesmithing community. Let me, let me ask you, a, a, I, want a vulnerable, I want a vulnerable answer here. <laughs> I'm, right. a, I'm a vulnerable answer. You learn, when you learn on your own, and you're watching videos and you're fooling around your your uh, you're fooling around in your garage and you're learning on your own you're learning on your own and then you get put in a position where you're forging alongside people who are have also learned on their own and gotten better maybe taking classes do you feel inadequate is that the first time of feeling inadequate where now you you've, been, you've already established yourself you got thrown out of a makerspace probably the only <laughs> maker there and then now you're in a makerspace with other guys like you who have done in the same level as you and up are you feeling inadequate or are you just excited that there's someone that you can learn from um I, so i i sort of already knew that i was at the the, the entry level of of the craft because at that point in time you know just me getting into the greater community i was following the work of maybe three or four knife makers it was aaron goff it was uh sean hatcher and then it was bruce bump bruce bump a mastersmith uh out in walla walla out in uh at west and obviously if you're looking at a mastersmith's work and then you're looking at your work you realize oh okay i there's there's some work to be done i gotta i gotta get from here to there um so i already knew that i had a ways to go, and I was hungry for it, and I, I wanted to pursue it. Um, I, I don't think I let uh, uh, feelings of inadequacy, you know, drag me down for too long. It was just, yep, there's there's more to learn, and this is the place to do it. My first foray in inadequacy probably was the worst of all time. And I think the hard part is, is like for you, having not a lot of like, I had like, I had like, before I started making knives, I had like, almost 20 years of metalworking experience like i was an art major when i was 18 and then i was making sculpture but then i was working for a fabricator and i was moving metal i was around metal all the time for you know years when i made started making knives i had a little bit of history with steel in general was and i had forged for almost 10 years before i started Mm. making knives and I remember when I f- made my first knife where I actually, someone who was a knife maker saw it. It was fun. And it was Bob Kramer. And it oh, was man. like, I had no, no one had ever seen my, no other knife maker had seen my knives that I was making on my own, but Bob Kramer. And it was like, he, it was, it was at an event and my, and my business partner found, said, oh, you got to come down here. We're going to meet Bob Kramer, bring a knife. And I'm just like, I'm super inadequate about it anyway, because I'm just like, Bob Kramer's the man. I can't do this. And then Bob was telling me, yeah, you know, I look at other people's knives. And sometimes if I like it, I'll tell them what they feel. And if sometimes they don't want to critique and I don't like it, I'll say, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, oh, geez, here comes. 
So I bring up the knife to him. He's like, let me see your knife. I'm like, uh. He's just, he looks at it. He goes, oh, that's interesting. And I'm just like, oh, I got it. He got me. He did. <laughs> yep. But I mean, I'll that, there will never be another feeling of inadequacy like that one. And to the point where it's probably scarred me from wanting the other knife makers. I actually had a hammer in here, and I left some knives out, and I let some knife makers look at it. And even my friend, Mareko Mamasi, looks at my knives. And I'm just like, don't say anything. You know, I'm not ready for I'm not ready for a problem. It's that idea that we are as knife makers, we're learning from each other and we're judging each other to a certain degree. It's hard on the ego, especially if you're a solitary person. I agree, but it does sound like you skipped a an embarrassing phase, which is is not realizing where you're at and then thinking you're hot shit and showing your 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 goods to uh to someone like bob kramer or someone who's been in the craft much longer thinking oh you know i'm i'm gonna show them something and then they're very polite to you and say oh that's nice work good job with the pattern welding and looks like a knife and then you're like come away from that thinking you're on top of the world get a few more years under your belt look back at it and you realize that you uh (laughs) you played yourself a little I knew that I was garbage before I handed the knife. Like I was like, I didn't want to, I didn't want to show it to him. And he's like, come on. He like egged me on. And I no, was no, that's like, that's what I'm I, saying. You, you skipped that phase. That's good to skip that phase. Cause I certainly went through it. And, well, uh, I, but you have, <laughs> no, you have to understand. I have a very low opinion of myself. Uh, I have a very low opinion of myself in general. And I appreciate the fact that I don't in a crazy part about being on knife talk is all of a sudden now, and you know, video where I'm the knife expert is I really know that I'm not and I don't mm. pretend to be like I never talk to people like I am better than I got I'll never I never critique stuff for people I'll never critique stuff for people just because I'm just like I'm not I'm not you got to go in your own way sure and I and I just wonder for you how did you start to you're, you're in this maker space how did you did you were you excited when you're around all these other knife makers? Did you feel like you just wanted to go more? Tell me how you were feeling then. Yeah, well, I'm a I'm a pretty social creature, and you know, to the point where it would be fair to accuse me sometimes of being a little fanboyish. Um, so I'm I'm sure I was bugging these guys with constantly trying to be over their shoulder and look at what they're making and 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 getting excited and that you know stirring up the idea for me to make something else. Um, but it was it was a period of very, very quick growth. I mean, I went from um, making real simple knives to doing my first pattern welding very early and doing my first hammones very early. And then I was on to making like a full length longsword um, <laughs> well before maybe it would have been advisable to try it. But I mean, I think that having a lot of ambition and and trying these, you know, higher level projects and just seeing where you succeed and where you fail that was that was really educational um my first sword is was before i ever made a knife it was out of college actually i made a couple swords they're they're really not swords because <laughs> they well i ask you a funny story is when i was in college i found i was an art major and i was like the well i was also the welding um the welding shop um what assistant and I found that a lot of the classes that I was teaching, or not teaching, I was taking, the teachers wanted you to come up with ideas outside of the box of papers. So I started doing a lot of 
swords. I know I started doing a lot of sculpture in lieu of papers because I, you know, you knock, you hit someone with a plasma cutter, knocks them out, and you do that. What we refer to as welding voodoo, where mm. or, or you know black magic, where no one knows what you're doing. They assume they know what you're doing, and then you can cough up something. You know, you can tell the migs, the mig spools too going too fast, and you see the spatter and the welds are awful. But to the to the pedestrian, they think you've you know you're like an alchemist or like a magician. Right. So I had a, a Japanese history class, and I said, "Why don't I make a sword, like a Japanese style sword?" And I made, I well, I just I didn't. It was just like regular, you know, regular mild steel blade, and then I riveted on this this ply this uh, two by four for a handle, and then I made this kind of like Keith Haring style crab sword guard and I brought it in and it was like I mean it was literally like one guy who was like this like real he was into Japanese history and he just he he wanted to hold it and he just bowed to it I was just like, oh, dude this is some this is some mild steel I've probably found from a junkyard knock it off not he treated nothing and he, he it was to him it was like it was like Musashi. I had given him like, this is like, I mean, and I got a good grade, but we used to do that stuff where we, we'd call it not one off the wrist. We call yep. it one off the wrist because you just knock something out in lieu. But the swords I was making, they were not, I mean, they were just like sword. They were not heat. They were mild steel bent with a handle sure, to it. Yeah. I, I feel like it's just a human behavior. They're just things that human beings do. They, they, they sing, they dance, they argue with each other and they make swords. Like it's yeah. just a thing that, it's a, it's a, a, almost a behavior more than it is a tradition. Like every culture, at some point, figures out how to make a long, sharp stick, and then it becomes an important thing to their culture. When I was younger, I wasn't allowed to have. We weren't allowed to play with toy guns. I wasn't allowed to have toy guns, and my dad taught me how to use the bandsaw, and um, we would make. I, I'd make swords. I'd make swords out of wood, and it was very like. It was. It, it, you, you're right. It's part of our tradition as as children, as people, to figure out how to make these, you know, these wooden swords, and then it's what you do with them, which is the amazing thing. I just, for me, you know, this is an age difference. Is on Saturdays, uh, Saturdays and Sundays. I think it was Saturday afternoons. They would play um, Chinese kung fu movies dubbed. Mm. There was like an American version of where the American. They would have to dub the the words were weird. That's it's a big joke now when they play it. Is the American uh, voiceover was weird because it had to kind of sort of match up with what the the Chinese actors were doing, and we would always watch it because it was crazy, always massive fighting and incredible violence all the time. And it was for us. It wasn't swords as it was like broomsticks. Like we were taking broomsticks and making nunchucks and staffs and like beat clubs, and we were beating the brakes off each other with like <laughs> the because it was for us. It wasn't the swords as much because the swords in like those Chinese uh, kung fu movies, or those kung fu. I should just say kung fu movies. The swords were like they weren't doing a lot of, especially for. Um, kids and stuff. There wasn't like beheadings and there wasn't like, you know, real damage. It was like no one was ever getting jacked up too much with the swords in the TV shows. Maybe there'll be like a, you know, Bruce Lee would get like a little line across his chest or something like that. But it was like we were doing more like nunchucks and stuff and beat, beating each other up. Oh, sure. How did you get, tell me about your gro your growth as a knife maker, your growth as a sword maker, 
at what point, I know we're jumping ahead, but that's just the way it is. That's the way it is. How, I would, I would assume you're getting more involved because of your proximity towards Dragon's Breath Forge, New England School of yeah, Metalwork. Yeah. When are you starting to kind of like create these relationships? One of the things I do see in your work is I do see a connection, and maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. I do see a, neck, a connection between you and the style of swords and knives that the Dragons with Forge guys do. I would say that's that's fair, um, especially at this point where um, Matt Parkinson and I have both studied under under Peter Johnson, um, and maybe more importantly, you know. Both of us, or all three of us, are trying to have some historical authenticity in the inspiration of the work. Um, but to, to answer the first part of the question, so as I'm breaking into this this bigger thing, which is being serious about knife making and, and getting involved in the community, the first uh, uh, you know high level maker who I meet in person is Zach Jonas up in New Hampshire, right. and so I happen to be working. Uh, I, I'm interning for a summer up at a steel casting foundry in the middle of New Hampshire. And I'm living with a buddy of mine who I know from school, um, right there in Warner. And at that point, I knew about the ABS. The ABS has a tool where you can look up where the journeymen's and the masters are. And I just realized, oh, hey, there's, a, there's an ABS uh, journeyman smith just 10 minutes down the road. And I just dropped him an email and said, hey, I'm up here. I'm interested. You know, do you mind if I come introduce myself? And, and he accommodated that. So, But that was crazy because I got to see a Mastersmith test set, the, one of the, the first set that Zach had put together for his testing process. And holding that work in person is, is miles different than seeing a picture of a high-level work. Holding it and, and starting to understand how to look at it and to be rewarded looking at it in detail is itself you know, as, as valuable as taking a class, maybe. Mm. So I met Zach. Um, I got to know Zach. I got to know Dakota a little bit. and. Through following him, then I, I realized there's this whole network of New England bladesmiths and swordsmiths um, who are all you know, connected you know, through both the, the classes that Zach does with Peter Johnson up there, as well as through sort of this lineage coming down from J.D. Smith, who has himself you know, instructed many of the, you know, the, the highest level smiths in, in the area. There, there is... So I don't feel like I'm off the I'm completely off off the rails when I say that there is a part of this northeastern knife making and sword making that there is like some commonality oh yeah I mean I I say often it is the best place in the world to learn how to make swords I mean you just can't beat it in terms of from where I'm sitting right now it's two hours to Dragon's Breath it's two hours to Zach Jonas it's maybe two and a half to New England School of Metalwork. Um, all these people are, you know, extremely knowledgeable, extremely kind and generous with their time. They teach classes. They're they're invested in the next generation of knife making and and in encouraging people along that path. And yes, I I mean I'm biased. I live here, but I think that the work being done by the New England bladesmithing community is some of my favorite. I think it's pushing interesting boundaries. I think it's digging um, interesting roots from a variety of different cultures and not just making the same European longsword over and over again. I mean, heck, Jordan just went out to, to India to learn traditional Indian 
embellishment and and study Indian arms. Yeah, that um, was. A, I had a great conversation about him about Kafgari and. Yeah, I enjoyed that one he a lot. Did, uh, and I think he just did a uh, a class on it at the New England School of Metalworks. All right. He did. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I guess I would say that I would say that the New England guys and i'm just saying it and i'm not making like this isn't some gang i'm just saying that there's like <laughs> there seems to be when i think about the knife making sword making community in the northeast there is like it is different than it is it's a different area but the one person that sticks out and i'm saying this with peace love and he listens to this podcast is joshua prince joshua <laughs> prince is like this beautiful aberration in in the northeast knife making and sword making oh he's a maverick that's for he's sure he's a maverick and what's interesting is is his experience seems to be different than most of the people in the northeast talking to him about growing up with his parents where his father was a professor at the Rhode Island School of Design and having you know art was like he we want to talk about osmosis art living as an artist was and, and making tough decisions and going with your gut and, and, and going against the grain really has become something special for him. But it's like I watched from the beginning of people just like kind of, you know, dismissing it as not really something that pe people would like to he is on the cover of magazines. Oh, absolutely. Well, people can tell when there's just something that's different, right. right? Something different that stands out, that grabs your attention. Like, oh, I haven't seen this before. And Josh's work isn't only that, but then it then rewards the deeper look that happens after your attention's been grabbed. And you realize, oh, this really is. There's, there's stuff worth studying in detail. And when you meet him, I mean, I met him, I think I met him the first time I met him was at Dragon's Breath, I believe. And one thing is, is like, he has the same temperament as all you traditionalists. And I say traditionalists, I'm not saying it sneeringly. I'm saying like, he has the same temperament as of all the craftsmen you guys are. Like the, even the young guns, all you guys, you know, embracing in the ABS style. But he is, at the same time, he's got the same temperament. He's got the same, asks the same questions. He says the same things. He's as interested as anybody else. He's as much of a nerd, a knife nerd as anybody. However, it's through the lens of this, like, oh, I don't know what to say, Dolly? You know, Salvador Dolly? I don't know, I don't know how you sure. even, like, it's almost as if everyone has this lens, but his lens is, like, light years different than everybody else's. Well, there's a, I, what I see in Josh's work, and what I would love to emulate, and I've started trying to, is a lack of fear to explore new ground, right? To, to, to commit to an idea, a, a pure idea, like, hey, let's, let's make a knife and let's style it like a World War II bomber. That was one of the right. first Josh Prince knives I saw. Uh, it was up at Newton School of Metalwork. It's com committing to the idea and, and seeing the knife not just as functional object but as canvas for art and canvas for sculpture and yeah the, the 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 lack of fear to see where that idea is going to take you because it you can you can draw a knife very easily in the first dimension in the side profile if you're you have your brain wrapped around the third dimension you can draw maybe the top view right to get an idea of the sculpting of a handle but you can't get from 2d to where josh prince is without just 
leaping in headfirst and, and seeing but what But it's happens. more than that. And I'm glad you mentioned that because we're talking about traditionalists and talking about people upholding the values of, you know, historic and stuff like that. Because of his... Because of his upbringing, and you can listen to the old episode of, of Full Blast with Josh Prince, he, his dad had like a table saw in the kitchen. You know, they, 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 went to, they would go to art shows when he was a child. He was like forced into this idea of not, you know, be, needing to be validated by the viewer. When you're an artist, when you're real, and, and I've gone through this a million times about it. Art yeah, yeah, I know, art, and I'm, I'm eager to have this part of the all conversation. All knives are knives art. Is it not art? I mean, we can you you can make different. You know, I, I in my mind, and I'm flawed in the sake of when I think of art, I think of contemporary sculptural gallery art. I don't really, I and it's it's condescending, and it's most likely you know uh, obnoxious and arrogant. And <laughs> I'm just saying it. I mean, I understand, but. His his idea and his beginnings of being an artist and putting yourself out there and not following what you know. I'm not painting an apple like the guy next to me is painting an apple, and you're just like, okay, yeah, he painted an apple. You're you're taking very very deep. You're putting yourself in this vulnerable position of doing something outside of the norm that some people just won't like. Like he, Josh sure. Prince couldn't. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. You tell me if I'm wrong. Josh Smith, um, Josh Smith, Josh Prince <laughs> says today, I am going to test for the ABS, but I'm going to do my style knives. Now, I know that for the journeyman Smith, you can't do Damascus and stuff like that. Let's just say, for argument's sake, he says today, I'm going to do my style of knives for the ABS. And they might be a little bit outside of the lines. Does he pass doing his style of knives? You know, I'm not sure. Yeah, me neither. If you, if you back up 10 years, it'd be easy to oh, say yeah. no. 100%. Good job, Ryan. Easy to say no if you back up 10 years. But right now, I, the, the boundaries and the design languages are being pushed and expanded in, I think, really interesting directions. And you're seeing things pass that certainly would not have 10 years ago. I mean, Josh, if he set his mind to it, could certainly execute all the technical requirements and have a technically passing right. set. And then it's just a matter of communicating his design intent to... I mean, but this, here's a case of you wouldn't need to. To, to do what Josh is doing, um, I mean, if, you, if his goal is to add value to the ABS and to expand the boundaries of the ABS, and I think that would be a worthy goal, then sure, go for it. But I mean, would you, I don't think he needs you're, to. You're, I, I mean, I'm just saying it as an exercise. An exercise of, I don't think, I mean, once again, he can do whatever that he wants and he's now, 10 years ago, you're 100% right. There, is, there isn't the value on these incredibly, and I think it's because of him. I think it's because of him because he does spend time with David Lish. He does spend time with Steve Schwarzer. He does spend time oh, yeah. with like some of the best in the world. He's technically proficient to the point where he is definitely, without question, one of the most important knife makers in the United States as of right now. And I think that it took a long time for people to accept that style. And I think it's to the ABS's credit that you can get Matt. I mean, David Lish, he's on the testing grounds of, I mean, he's the guy who's doing the testing, you know, it's, and he spent time. I mean, he know these guys who are the judges spent time with guys like Josh, 
uh, Prince. And they kind of know the kind of guy he is too. So it makes me feel like he could do, he would pass now. You're 100% right. 10 years ago, they wouldn't let him through the door. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine as a technical exercise. I'm, I'm sort of more interested in what are these different knife-making traditions that are, are, are coming up in front of us, right? The ABS is, has a deep tradition in, in American bladesmithing, and that's fine, we've, and we've talked about that. But now there are, there are these new traditions. Like There are a bunch of us doing medieval and, and Viking-era pieces right. at, and trying to bring that up. And there's Josh Prince coming at it from like a contemporary art and sculpture angle. And there's all these different super interesting and valuable um, bodies of work that are that are growing in front of us that just uh, I'm, I'm entranced by. You make me realize that I used to say knives aren't art seven years ago. Yeah, you say that frequently. I do. Well, that's my bit. I mean, I need something, I need something <laughs> to keep these people listening. But now, in the next, give me another five years, and I might change my mind completely. Yeah, I was I was debating whether I should kind of grill you on it during this during Feel this free. conversation because I'm slippery dude. Well, Brian, I'm going to do it by Brian, way of I am slippery. I am super slippery. So go ahead. You know, granted, go power ahead. to you. I'm going to come at this question um, by means of where I'm go coming ahead. at it from. So, I mean, I I did the JS test. I wanted to have a very firm technical background because I I agree with maybe one of the more contentious folks you've had on here you have to have a level of technical skill to execute good art agreed um so get the technical skill down but an abs square ricasso hunting knife you could i don't think that's necessarily art um but you can use the knife as a canvas for art and for me that's the more valuable direction to pursue in in my work because i want to add to the conversation i don't want to make another you know, three-inch drop-point hunting knife. I, I would like to make pieces that inspire some consideration and that are adding to the conversation of where knife-making and bladesmithing is going. I 100% agree with you. You didn't say anything. You didn't, didn't grill me. That didn't, I didn't feel grilled at all. I was waiting for you to grill me. I, my opinion is, and I had this when I was talking to Jared Thatcher last week, is, you know, I, actually... Build back, back it up. I had a professor who was the drawing and painting professor, and his name was Marty Garhart. And he was, he was like a Montana guy. He was a lumberjack. He was covered in tattoos. I'd never seen an adult like who wasn't like a biker. And I was eighteen. I hadn't seen. I always wanted tattoos. Who wasn't like a rock guy? It wasn't, wasn't. He was just his painter. But he was like tough and he had prison tattoos and he was just like a tough dude. But he was extraordinary. <laughs> his drawing and his painting were like incredible, incredible. And he used to say to me, he used to say to everybody, not me, he said to everybody, like you can paint whatever you want. But if you don't, you could do whatever you want. But if you don't have the technical ability to express yourself correctly, then you're just wasting your time. And he really kind of exp- expressed to me the because people were like, I don't want to paint that. I want to paint. And he's like, you're, you're, we're drawing this today and you're going to draw well, this a hundred times until you get it right. Technical skill in, in like a physical medium, painting, drawing, knife making technical skill is in my mind, analogous to like communication skills. If you want to have a conversation with someone, you need some degree of 
communication skills to make sure you can express your points and have them be understood and for you to understand the points that other people are making to you. And without that ability, you're not going to make any you know, progress in the conversation. It's the same with art. If you want to be able to express yourself conversationally with the state of art and with other artists and with people who aren't artists, the technical skill is, is necessary to communicate what you're trying to do. However, there was a huge bump in the road in art where the technical abilities weren't as sought after as the final outcome. And that was a part of art that was very controversial. I mean, you look at mm. like Rembrandt, he was training people to paint Rembrandt paintings. You know, It's like David Lish teaching people how to make David Lish knives. And then you start to see you know, guys like Van Gogh and all these guys kind of like making things a little bit less you know, uh, technically accurate to the point where now you can have people who can't paint or draw at all and they're creating these amazing things. I mean, I, my, as a New York... Are, are you trying to make an argument that Van Gogh was not technically skilled no, he, painting? No, Cause, no, no. <laughs> I'm saying that his, his later work slowly, slowly started to go into these like... I mean, look at Picasso. He started out as a very technically oriented painter and as his paintings progressed, he got simpler and simpler and almost they be, all became a little bit more childlike to the point where you get in art, you get this idea. You've heard this expression a million times. So when somebody's walking into, a, into an art gallery and they say, my kid could have done that. You know, so... Yeah, I mean, you, you hear that, but I feel like it's very different to arrive at the final works of Picasso without going through without going through the journey I gave, right i don't think you put up a kid's finger painting next to a picasso for longer than a few seconds before realizing there's a fundamental difference i here. gave a i gave very simplified i gave simplified uh, examples that probably were dumb but especially <laughs> but at the mean. same time once again you know i i meet young meet young artists and you look at their their i think that if you got to obviously you look within the confines of the artist's work, like Picasso or Van Gogh, and you see where the things have come from. And I think that it's a, it's a much more technically difficult thing to see how, where an artist came from to, make, to see their decision-making. And I think that with knife-making and, and the technical aspects of it, you're 1,000% right. You cannot start to loosen up and start to be as creative as you want until you've kind of fundamentally figured out what you're su- kind of supposed I'm putting finger quotes up supposed to do eh, I, I sort of agree with you I feel like there's there's value in in just trying something wild and and letting your creative expression go wild and make something crazy and it will probably be a little unclear and and muddy in its direction but if you know if if you want to pursue that idea you know this concept then it may be worth saying, oh, well, what do I need technically to execute this, right? Does it need some engraving? Do I need to learn some engraving? Do I need to learn how to pattern weld in a new technique because, you know, my original attempt at this wasn't quite right? Um, technical skills are just, they will just add clarity to the, to the work. It's not a bad thing to go out on a limb and, and try something well outside your comfort zone. There's no other way to, to push where you're going as, a, as an artist, as a maker. Brian Brewer, look at you. Question for you. As you see, as you see where knife making is going, what are some new techniques do you think are going to really become something that people really invest their time and energy in? Hmm. Because, I mean, if you think about it, 
nowadays with the with presses and power hammers and like techniques and you know P- I mean, Mareko's teaching how to do pattern welding steel all over the place and there's more opportunities for people to learn and the New England School of Metalworks doing it and the Center for Metal Arts is yeah, doing let's... it. Pattern welding is 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 becoming a very very a much more and I'm saying common as just like you know a more common practice than it ever really has been for people in their homes. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's more accessible, accessible, we'll say. Accessible, 100%. Um, let's do two. Let's do two Go techniques. Ahead. So I hope that Jordan is successful in bringing an enthusiasm for Kaftgari and for overlay technique, because it's something that basically you don't see at all in American tradition. And that's thrilling to me to see not only actual traditional Indian work being emulated here, but to see where that technique goes as it's integrated into existing traditions. So that's a very old and, and deep um, technique that I hope we see more of. And let's do a modern one. Um, the use of 3D printing in canister welding. I personally am not super into canister welding. Um, it just doesn't you know, captivate my right. attention. But some of the smiths that I follow are doing really interesting work where they're setting up these these patterns in the in the 3D print, and they can actually scale the um, scale the initial print to account for drawing out the billet later to a final size. And so they can aim for a final pattern by shrinking the print directionally to the size of the canister, and then unfold it as they're forging. And I think that's that's really interesting. And there's a lot of depth that can be pursued there. So they're ma- so they're so they're when they're making the 3D printing of the whatever type of let's say a landscape or something like that they're they're putting into account how it's going to stretch out yeah wow. exactly that is a pretty so you cool. take your final picture squish it in one direction by three times squish it in the other direction by one time and then you know you've got to do a three to one drawing in, in the forging and a one to one drawing in the forging wow that's neat. yeah that's super it's, neat i don't know whether those are going to be the big two i just those come to my head first let's do one from from history and one that's like right on the cutting edge. How do you think technology is going to help the home smith? I don't want to say I, mean, I don't I want to say professional smith. Or I don't like saying full time, part time. Let's just say the person at home. How do you think technology mm-hmm. is going to help? I don't think technology is going to help. I mean, uh, to some extent, I feel like we're already there. We already have. I think I said this earlier. Like the best equipment for making knives that's ever been seen on the face of the earth. Right here it is. We're, we've arrived. Um, for me, I've, I've integrated, you know, as, as an engineer in my day job, you know, I'm using, um, 3d design software. I use SolidWorks all the time for doing templates and scaling things and, um, you know, having, having the design right there and and easily manipulable in, in an easier way than having to redraw a sketch. So that's very helpful in my own workflow. And I know there are, you know, other design software out there that will do something similar for you. Tell me about, do you, tell me about your engineering job. Sure. Yeah. I, um, I work at an injection molding plant as a automation engineer. And so I am working with uh, industrial robotics for the purpose of, um, you know, pulling plastic parts out of injection molds, you know, handing the part off to the next piece of equipment. Maybe I'm using a camera to inspect the part to make sure the part's good. So I'm programming vision systems, programming robots, designing the tools that the robots use to interface with these molds. Um, that's the kind of the broad strokes. Do you enjoy it? I do. 
I do it. It and crucially, it triggers. It it it, it taps at a different part of my brain than making knives does, and so I don't kind of burn myself out doing eight hours here and coming home and doing another four in the smithy. Um, this is actually where I, I had a question for you. When I am in my day job, a lot of what I'm doing is design and engineering of the process, not of the, of the product, right? The product is the product. The part is the part. What you're doing is you're improving the process by which you arrive at the finished okay. thing. And I imagine you do a lot of process engineering in, in your development of your work. Very good question. And this last week was really something kind of uh, out of the ordinary. Yeah. For me, for fader knives, it's very process oriented. There are certain situations. I mean, we have different models and stuff like that. And, and there, we also, because we've killed our, not killed, we've finished our custom orders. We have the ability now to kind of make what we want and put it on the website and if it goes, it goes and whatever. So there's a lot more being creative in terms of colors and designs of the handles. So actually this past week, we were put up for this coming week, uh, out should be out this Friday, where we did 15 pairing knives. And we, I had our guy, my guy, David, cut out a lot of handle scales, uh, just, the, just the sizes. And I said, Lydia, we just made a pile of different colors and started putting them together. So once in a while, I'll have an opportunity like that. And then I found a couple different patterns that I hadn't done before that I was just like, I want to investigate this more. So like, yeah, there is a lot, there's not as much more process oriented here, fader knives, but I find these real great moments to kind of like, you know, like a branch off on and kind of really kind of dive yeah. into. Does that answer your well, question? When you're, when you're, when you're running a business, you know, if you can save five seconds every time you make one knife, that can add up. If you can, if you can, or even if it's not time, if you can save some degree of your own sanity by making a, making a task easier. It's that, that adds it, up. That's, that's, what it's doing. tricky because I'm, I, I'm like learning how to do efficiencies differently. And it comes down to like, if we get the same performance out of one steel than another, and the other is the one, the one that we're getting better performance at, or just the same performance is easier to grind and finish. Then I have to make the, you know, we're saving, you know, an hour of extra work. Yeah. I got to make the executive decision we're switching steels, you know, but then, you know, all of a sudden this one, maybe this one warps a little bit too much, warps a lot in the grinding process and I got to repair that. It is, it, efficiencies are, well, I mean, it makes you realize the importance of craft versus art because as of running a business, you know, you can be as creative as you want, but I mean, the bills come in regardless yeah. whether or not it's a good day or a bad day. Right. So, I mean, I, it's funny. I was talking to Jared Thatcher last week and he was talking, he was like, it must be, you know, hard for you to have to, you know, being an artist and having to learn how to become disciplined. And I had made the point, I was like, look, no one believed in me when I went, became an art major and I had to make people believe in me by being very dedicated to discipline and showing up when I'm going to show up. And I didn't take days off and I didn't, you know, even if I didn't want to come to work, I did, I, you know, I, I had the ability, I could do whatever I want. And I never did any of that. And it was because I needed to be as craft driven in order for me to be taken seriously as not some, you know, dilettante who is like daddy's paying for everything, which was not the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
just to change gears, unless you have any other grilling. I like your grilling. Listen, no one ever grills me, so I'm, I'm like I said, I'm slippery. But at the same time, like I'm very, uh, you know. I'll, I'll try to catch you off guard with the go next ahead, one. Go ahead, go we'll, ahead. We'll, no, we'll, we'll go forward. We'll, we'll go forward. I'll, I'll find the right opportunity. Tell me, I have a couple things I want to ask you about. Tell me about the the uh, Peter Johnson class, the the sword making class, because I've talked to Matt Parkinson about it, and I know like there was one year where there was like a, a group picture, and it was like. Greg Sims and Nick Anger and Matt Parkinson. It was like a murderous the, the alumni of those classes is a who's who of the greatest, you know, knife bladesmiths, States. knife makers, swordsmiths. It's, it's, it's I mean, it's like a, a mur- when I say murderers row, it is like yeah, legit, like the best of the best go to see Peter Johnson. Tell me about him. Absolutely. Oh, well, I'm Peter's the man, Jeff. It's, he's, he's the greatest. I mean, just being. You know, you'd think that for how important this subject is to me, I would have like a, a script ready to ready prepared for how to describe this. But it's it's like immersing yourself in a, in another culture, being in those classes, because the you're you're so focused in on what our you know forebears in the craft were doing centuries ago, and what was important to them. And what languages did they use to communicate with each other? I'm not talking you know, German and right. Italian. I'm talking geometry and the use of the compass and the straight edge. And you look at making from an almost alien perspective, and then when it clicks and you realize, oh, this thing, the way they were doing this makes sense for what they were making. And it not only is a functional technical skill, but there's an interface with what was culturally important to them, what was religiously important to them, and there's this purity of of wholeness of the craft that you that you're you're steeped in, and so you're surrounded by you know fellow makers who are all very serious about knife making at a bare minimum, but really sword making because they've gone through the trouble of of coming to one of these classes. You're being constantly encouraged in your in your work, both what you're doing in the class and your body of work and where you're going as an artist. And you're doing all this, you know, up in up in, you know, beautiful New Hampshire and it's like summer camp for sword makers and Zach feeds you, you know, like a king for the week and I I, I sure could go on and on, but I'd love to talk about any specific detail of something. Where's everybody staying? Um some folks stay at Zach's if if you're if you're friends with Zach's, you know, he will put you up. Um that's not a hard and fast rule. There's also folks you know, staying with um, friends in the area. Like I said, I've got a buddy from college who's in Warner, who I often stay with. There's little, you know, uh, motels, Airbnbs, bed and breakfast things up, up in the area. And how? And the class is usually like a week long. Yeah, it's about usually a week. Um, either seven days for the sword classes, or five days for. I think I did scabbard class was about five days uh, recently. But Peter's branching out. He's doing deep dives into. For instance, the single-edged medieval sword, the, the falchion, or, the, or he'll do the German war knife, the messer. He's also done, I think what I'm most interested in doing next, is he will do a design class where the goal is not to leave with a completed study of a specific sword, but instead to study how you know medieval arms, Renaissance arms, are designed, and to explore different geometries, and to explore different techniques, and to really focus on your growth as a craftsman more purely than just, hey, we're going to teach you how to make a longsword. How did it change the way you make knives and swords? 
Oh, I mean, from a, from a technical aspect, like I said, this was my first class I ever took. So I, I certainly took away many technical skills, how to grind more efficiently, how to um, more effectively use foreshortening to, you know, to reveal inaccuracies in a, in a bevel or an edge, technical stuff like that. But more from a philo- philosophical basis. Um, I mean, one, one concept we could talk about, the sword is a weapon, right? The sword is not a kitchen knife or a hunting knife where you can uh, say, well, this is, this is for making a meal for my family. The sword is, is a weapon, right? It is an instrument of death. And if you want to bring one of those into the world, you need to have a good reason for doing it. You need to think about why you're doing this, right? You're, you're bringing something that has a serious negative aspect into existence, and you need to offset that by, by having a good, a good purpose for it. So that concept gave me a level of, of seriousness and a level of intentionality about all the work, not just swords, right? Why are you making this thing? Have a, have a reason for it. It doesn't have to be you know, some deep, profound truth, yeah. but to at least think about why you're making what you're making. So when you're making a sword, what are you thinking? What am I thinking? Well, I mean, like you said, so you said I you're thinking am, about it. What do you? Th- what are you? Yeah. Your, well, ahead. I'm. I've got this idea brewing right now for a piece that. Well, let me back up a little bit. Um, human beings are remarkably irresponsible with this earth that we mm, live on. That's for sure. Um, oh my god! There oh, are. Take. There are. So, <laughs> oh my god! There are so many examples of us intentionally poisoning the earth, or uh, you know, being careless and poisoning the earth. And oh, oops! We killed all the cows in the state of Ohio because we shipped them the wrong bag of feed, and all this crazy stuff. Where it's just, wow, we are being we are being terrible. So I'm I'm making this, I'm I'm working on this idea of a sword that is as if the Earth could respond to us and say, "You are poisoning me. You are you are being irresponsible, and you guys need to take this seriously and shape up, or otherwise, here's the edge." So. Who would wield the sword? Who would wield the sword? That's a great question. Okay. Maybe I need to think about who would wield the sword. Would it be, you know, some some human champion of of speaking for the trees? Would it be the Lorax? Right. I, I don't know. Um, in in my mind, the sword crystallizes out of this frustration and this need to communicate a level of seriousness of Hey, you guys got to realize that what you're doing is not okay. And that you are you are poisoning the ground that you stand on. I'm, I I love the fact that you've really thought about the whole. You know, I think when I had Matt Parkinson, I think he was saying this kind of the same thing. I mean, there is no real use. I mean, you see the videos of people like cutting wood with swords and stuff like that. But at the same time, it's just like just kind of you know fooling around. It is interesting that you do have to because I remember seeing I don't know maybe Nick's Instagram or someone somebody was telling me about. Um, when you're designing these swords, you're using a compass and then it's, this is three heads and this is three circles. And then it all, the geometry kind of works together when you're designing the hilt and you're designing the sword guard and the blades, everything is based off of these kind of consensual, uh, repeatable circles and measurements. So the intentionality of making these swords is so geometrically important the fact that you have to think about the philosophical reasons has to carry almost the exact same weight of really, really, really being thoughtful. Yeah. Well, I think the, it actually flows the opposite direction. I think that our, our, um, our forebears in the craft 
the, the sword was such a serious, you know, philosophical, religious object that they couldn't just wing it. They couldn't just say, ah, you know, we'll make the, it doesn't matter how wide the, the hilt is, it's fine, just, we'll make it fit the guy's hands, and it doesn't matter if it's symmetrical, it doesn't matter that the length of the hilt is a proportion to the blade. It, it did matter. It was so important that they had to use what, what they believed were deep fundamental truths about the world. They believed that, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, um, but they believed that geometry and proportion and harmony were, were divine gifts, and so you had to use these tools because the sword was such an important thing. And so you see them use the same tools, the compass, the straight edge, the proportion, the harmonic, in designing cathedrals and designing, um, you know, other, other culturally important objects. Do you think we do that now, technically? And I'm not, when I say that now, I'm saying when we design, as humans, are we using those same, those same principles when we design anything? Um, well, maybe an analog we could think about. Uh, I think you were talking about that, that raffle knife at the beginning. One thing that I see frequently in the American tradition is the idea of using significant materials. Not just picking any old right. steel from, from wherever, but let's get wood that George Washington planted. Let's get steel from you know, the Twin Towers or from you know, some... some that's, that's where we're drawing a level of cultural importance in a, in a piece like that. And I, I, you know, uh, a, a bunch of makers are working in that type of tradition. So I think that's maybe analogous. Yeah, it is, it's interesting. We're, it's almost as if... you Because know, knife-making, sword-making, all that stuff, blacksmithing as a modern thing is we're constantly looking back and it's like this nostalgia, but it's not nostalgia from 15 years ago. It's nostalgia from the way we thought it used to be. And the thing is, is like, if you look at back to ornamental ironworkers, if you see, if you talk to designers, if you talk to people who show up to them, these shops, they'll say, ah, I want something like this. And then they'll always look at older work and you'll make stuff that's reminiscent of older work or, you know, Baroque stuff or this traditional older stuff. But it doesn't, in, in a lot of cases, we would do these railings that they, they wanted this because they wanted to look what it, the way it used to look, but it doesn't really fit in the confines of the modern home. So it, it's almost as if we, it's, we're trying to figure out this nostalgia for design and we can't, it was almost can't get past it. And you, and you need to look at guys like Josh Prince who are not looking for nostalgia. They're not looking for where they're, where they used the way they used to be, but where we, we want them to go. Oh God, listen to me. Terrible. Oh boy. Terrible. Maybe so. Terrible. Terrible. Maybe so. I think it's, well, I mean, we want to move forward. We want to, keep the conversation going. We want to uh, add meaningfully to the body of, of work, of craft, art that, that we are participating in and to move it forward because what, otherwise, what's the point? What's, sort of what's the point in just mindlessly recreating? I mean, I feel like recreating is, is valuable. You've got to build your skills. You've got to learn. It's worth studying um, what the folks who came before you were doing, why they were doing it, what was important about it. Um, and from there, then moving forward has much more significance and more weight behind it because you are building on the tradition. Um, and I think that's what I see in the work of, of the makers I most admire, where they have a deep respect and understanding for what came before, and yet they are still trying to move forward and not look 
only backwards. Last question. And this is the story sure. I want from you. I've referenced this story on Knife Talk a few times, probably referenced it here. You're getting ready to uh, submit for your uh, Journeyman ah, yes. Smith class. You've finished your, not the class, for the designation. You've taken your knives. You've wrapped them up. They're ready to be judged at the, you know, golden year of the of of of, <laughs> uh, of, of people going for Journeyman Smith. You wrap your knives up. You put them in your bag. You get on the airplane bound for Atlanta. You check your bags with your knives. You write a note in the in the. Well, I'll let you tell the story. You open the bags yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, you're doing. You open the bags you're doing up. Pretty good, but go ahead, tell the then, story. All right, so. Uh, I'm just going to clarify one or two details. So, flying with knives is terrible. It sucks. It's scary. You're, you're, you're having a heart attack every time you do it, let alone when you're doing it for a presentation set. So I actually send three of my five down uh, uh, via the land route with um, Matt Veneer and some of my buddies who are driving it. So three of them are safe. I know they're going to be fine. But the reason I only sent three is because I was literally finishing the last two knives for that JS set the night before I flew out. Like, they were not done until minutes before I put my head on the pillow to, to sleep before the day of, of the flight. And so, yes, those two knives I finished. I oiled the crap out of them. I put them in the case. On top of the case, I write a note that says, you know, these knives are heading to an exhibition where they will be judged um, for a professional certification. The, the oils on your fingers can be corrosive and damaging to these knives. You know, please refrain from touching close the case, fly, go to Atlanta, land in Atlanta, get to my hotel, start unpacking everything. And wouldn't you know, there's a big rusty fingerprint right on one of the bevels of one of these knives. And I mean, there's evidence that the, the case had been opened and, and tampered with and inspected and the note was in a different place than I left it. So I mean, I know it had been opened. Um, and you know, your heart just sinks, right? It's, you absolutely can't present a, a knife with a rusty fingerprint on it. But, you know, here's, here's where the, the power of the knife-making community comes in. I, I just text a couple people, like, emergency, who brought sandpaper? Who has, you know, can, can I pull this together at the last minute? And the answer, of course, is yes. Will Stelter brought some sandpaper and a little vice. And um, that, that morning at, you know, 6.30 a.m. before the 7 o'clock doors open to the judging room, I'm down there in the pit with a small vice clamped to the back of a um, the back of a stool, and I'm re-hand sanding the knife with the with the rusty fingerprint. And I finish up. I go upstairs. I put it all down on a table, and and I pass. But one piece of the story that I don't think I've I've told yet is after the fact. Um, I I learned something, which is that when my, my preferred uh, uh, finish for handles is tongue oil, and I learned that. As tongue oil is curing, it can off-gas a, you know, a, a vapor that is corrosive to steel. And so the fingerprint that whatever you know, TSA fellow may have put on there, it may not have been just the fingerprint. He may have just removed enough of the oil that the tongue oil that was still curing on my handle could have gone in there and attacked it. So I, I maybe retract one-third of the blame from, from the TSA agent. I'm going to leave him with two-thirds of it, but it, it maybe some of it's on me for finishing that knife so soon, you know, before the Let's deadline. Let's give him seven-eighths of the blame. 
Let's uh, give him uh, seven-eighths seven of the blade. Because <laughs> seven for the you rest asked of him not to touch it, and he did, sure did. He did it anyway. There's one <laughs> fingerprint. When you put on one, if he had, there were lots of fingerprints like he was inspecting it, looking at it, that's one thing. There's, if you're telling me there's one. Yeah, it was on one side, and it was right where the pinch grip would have been, too. One fingerprint. That means he said, he doesn't want me to put a fingerprint on, doesn't touch it, I'm putting one fingerprint on. That's, a, that's not inspecting. That's being a prick. I mean, I mean there's no other. But you know what, Jeff? We, we roll with the punches. Look at you. Ryan Brewer rolls with the punches. This was great. You have any other yeah, class questions or any grillings you want to do? I think we covered it all. <laughs> no, I've, I think we've, yeah, we've covered a pretty wide, wide swath of it. Guys, um, Ryan Brewer's the man. You have an open door policy. You have an open door policy. Guys, go follow Ryan Brewer on Instagram. You should definitely see what he's doing. He is just an awesome, awesome guy. Um, he is Brewer underscore Blades on Instagram. Follow him. He's one of the young guns. He's up there with Kurt Holland and Will Stelter and all these young guys who are making it happen. He's a, he's a smart guy. He's a terrific person. He's part of the, uh, the Northeast uh, contingent of uh, the Northeast contingent. And with that said, I appreciate you coming on, Ryan. You got an open invite. We'll definitely have you back on sooner rather than later. And uh, guys, we're going to see you next week. We have a, It's going to be an intense conversation. And just, you know, I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to speaking to Bob. And I'm looking forward to you hearing about it. And uh, without any further ado, thank you so much, Ryan. Um, you're fantastic. And uh, I want to thank uh, Craig Lockwood behind the glass who's making this happen. So we'll see you guys next week. And uh, Ryan, thanks again. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.